Now, when you became a Christian, God forgave you on the basis of his son's death. All of your sin, past, present, and future, was forgiven because of Christ's sacrifice for you. At the moment you were saved, the Spirit of God came to live in you, and he was filling you. But while he may have been filling you then, it does not necessarily mean that he is filling you now. God longs to fill you. God wants to fill you. The only thing that will keep you from being filled is if you are already full. And if you're so full of self, so full of pride, so full of your own talents and skills that you don't need God, then you will not see his work in your life. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today's sermon is entitled, The Division on the Last Day of the Feast, in John chapter 7, verses 37 through 53. We are in a study of the Gospel of John, and we continue in chapter 7 today. So far, Pastor Carl has presented a message entitled, The Doubt Before the Feast, in which Jesus' own brothers expressed their doubts about him being the Messiah. And the last time we presented the debate in the midst of the feast, in which the gathered crowds argued with Jesus over his healing on the Sabbath. Today, we begin the division on the last day of the feast. It is the Feast of Booths that time spent celebrating God's deliverance over the Jews after 40 years in the desert. Jesus is in Jerusalem, and on the last day of the feast, the attending crowds are divided on whether they should crown Jesus as Lord or to crucify him as a heretic. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he begins. Take your Bibles, please turn to John chapter 7. John 7. In just a moment, we're going to begin by reading our passage of Scripture, which really describes the work of God the Holy Spirit in both the believer and the unbeliever. If you remember, we've said it many, many times that John wrote this gospel with two principal purposes in mind. When you come to the end of the gospel, he says, Many other signs therefore Jesus performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written that, number one, you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. Number two, that in believing, you might have life in his name. All scripture is inspired by God and it's profitable. It's going to be profitable for those who don't know Christ. And it's going to be profitable for those of us who do know Christ. Real life is found in the Savior as revealed in the Word of God. And Jesus is going to teach us this morning that that life is realized through the indwelling presence and filling of the Holy Spirit. Follow along in your Bible. Let's begin in verse 37 where we left off last time. John chapter 7. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Some of the multitudes, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there arose a division in the multitude because of him. And some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers therefore came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to him, 
Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, Never did a man speak the way this man speaks. The Pharisees therefore answered them, You have not been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this multitude which does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus said to them, He who came to him before being one of them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered and said to him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises from out of Galilee. And everyone went to his home. Now don't forget the context of the broader scheme of these verses of Scripture. Chapters 7 and 8 are linked together. There's a period of approximately seven months between the end of 6 and the beginning of 7 in verse 2. Remember chapter 6, it started during the Feast of Pentecost. He fed some 20,000 people. He gave an incredible message called the Bread of Life Discourse. And when he gave it, some began to grumble, some began to argue. Ultimately, there was total desertion with the exception of the twelve. And John noted for us that all these things, the Bread of Life Discourse, happened in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. An important footnote, because it marks a change in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. So we come now, verse 2 of this chapter, to the Feast of the Jews, the Feast of Booths that was at hand. And so seven months had transpired between the end of 6 and chapter 7 in verse 2. And so we met him at Pentecost where he fed 20,000. Now we come to the Feast of Booths and we're away from one more Pentecost, six months away when they will nail him to the cross. So we're moving down the final course and segment of our Lord's life. And during these next six months, there's a growing intensity of hatred towards him. Now, we noticed last time that this seventh chapter focuses around three centers of opposition that also correspond to three time divisions. So I've preached it in that fashion. We looked at the events first that led up to the feast, the events that took place during the feast. And today we come to that segment on the events that happened on the last day of the feast. In verses 1 through 13, we first examined the doubt before the feast. We saw that Christ's own brothers were in unbelief, that they had serious doubts about his claims. Now remember, this feast takes place, according to Leviticus, in the month of Tizri, during the September-October time frame. They're on a lunar calendar, so it's different every year, depending on what the moon is doing. We follow a lunar calendar for Easter, and so this year's Easter is different from the date we had last year. And of course, during the month of Tizri, when they celebrated this, uh, this festival, for seven days, they lived in booths. Why? Because for 40 years, because of disobedience, they had wandered in the wilderness. They lived in caves and tents. And so God had them live in booths to remind them how he had provided for them for 40 years. It was also a reminder of the harvest that had just been experienced and how God had provided for the nation once again. Now, of course, uh, when the feast is about to happen, verse 3 tells us, his brother said, depart from here, go to Judea, that your disciples also may behold your works that you're doing. They're saying, don't waste your time down out here in the sticks. Go on up to Jerusalem. Go on up to the city, the religious capital. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. If you are indeed the Messiah... 
Go up and show yourself. And of course, they are predicating this statement with this word, if. If you do these things. There's doubt in their own minds, and their doubt can only be understood in light of verse 5, for not even his brothers were believing in him. There were not yet true believers. They don't become as such until after the resurrection. So Jesus responds to them, my time is not yet at hand, but your time is always opportune. It may be the right time for you to go because he says in verse 7, you've got a different relationship to the world that I have. I'm the light of the world, and as the light of the world, he showed sin, and people didn't like him. He said the world wouldn't like me. So he knows he has to go at precisely the right time. If he goes too soon, it could mean an early crucifixion. But he's operating, here's his balance between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. This one who's born in the fullness of time, who lived in the fullness of time, who died in the fullness of time, who rose in the fullness of time, who ascended in the fullness of time, and the Bible teaches who will come back again in the fullness of time. It's a major theme that John will echo all the way through the 19th chapter that he's operating on a divine schedule. And so that's the doubt before the feast. When we came to verse 14, he comes up to the feast. First, his brothers go up. And they want to know, where is he? Where is this miracle worker from Nazareth? We want to see him. He goes at just the right time in the middle of the feast, and he begins teaching in the temple. And we saw in verses 14 through 36 the debate that took place. They debated over his teaching. They debated over his origin. And then they debated over his departure. That brings us to where we are today, the division on the last day of the feast. There in your note-taking outline, I want you to notice that we've looked at it. We're looking at this portion of Scripture under two sections. In verses 37 to 39, we have Christ's invitation. And then in verses 40 to 52, we have the reaction to his invitation. So let's consider first the invitation of Christ. It's given for us in verse 37. Now on the last day... The great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. On this final day of the feast, Jesus makes this announcement concerning the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now again, for seven days they had lived in booths. They were remembering God's faithfulness. And after the seven days were over, there was an eighth day that had really been considered part of the festival at this time in Jewish history. And God recorded what was to happen on that eighth day in the book of Leviticus where, feast is where this feast is described. Listen to these words. For seven days you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation and present an offering by fire to the Lord. It is an assembly. You shall do no laborious work. So on the last day, the greatest day of the feast, there was a special gathering, a holy convocation. Now this had developed over the centuries and a number of the Jewish rabbinical manuals that have come down to us describe what took place. They would make this huge procession with branches reminding them of the booths they had been in all week and they would go down to the pool of Siloam and the high priest would take a bucket, as it were, and he would dip it into the pool of Siloam, and they'd all march back to the temple, and then he would pour the water out there in the temple. And as he poured the water out, they sang Isaiah 12 and verse 3, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. That happened on the last day, the great day of the feast. Remember, they were considering God's faithfulness, and the water was symbolic of that. 
Remember, as they wandered in the desert for 40 years, on one occasion, really two occasions, they became very thirsty themselves. And in Exodus 17, God supernaturally delivered water out of a rock. And we learn that this was a type. A type is a symbol. It's an emblem, a picture of Messiah. And Paul relates it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, telling us that the rock was Christ. And so the water was emblematic of Christ and really of the Holy Spirit. Water in Scripture is symbolic of cleansing. It's also symbolic of God the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of God is described in these verses as a river of living water. And so here's the Lord. He's sitting down in the crowd watching all this, listening to all of this, and his heart is so moved, he just has to get up and give an invitation. And he cried out. It's a verb that means he shouted, If any man is thirsty... Let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Now understand he's speaking about salvation. This is an invitation to the multitude to respond to him in salvation. But there are principles here that apply equally to the Christian today. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable to equip us to walk in righteousness and to do every good deed that God wrote beforehand for us to do. And so he's going to give us some principles, even as Christians, on how to live this thing we call the Spirit-filled life. Now, a lot of Christians get bogged down between Calvary and Pentecost. They come to Calvary for pardon, but they don't come to Pentecost for power. And of course, the Lord Jesus, who is the master teacher, he describes with such simplicity how to make this a reality in the individual's life. Now, I've heard a lot of people speak over the years on the spirit-filled life. And on occasion, I hear some people, and people leave scratching their heads and say, man, that was deep. I don't have a clue as to what he was saying. As Vance Havner used to say, just because the river is muddy doesn't mean that it's deep. Christ taught in such a way that little children could understand. He was able to communicate to children, and he was able to communicate to apostles. It's so simple, and yet it is so profound. If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And so he highlights in this invitation four basic truths, such that if you are here today and you are not a Christian, it will show you how you can come to a new life through Jesus Christ. And if you are a Christian, the same principles apply on how you can continue to be a river of living water. Really, the whole gospel is summarized in this verse with direct application for both the Christian and the non-Christian. First of all, number one, you must thirst. If any man is thirsty, and I would simply ask you this morning, are you thirsty? Do you know the reason why many people do not come to Jesus Christ for salvation? It's because they're not thirsty. They are satisfied with sin and self John 3, 19, they don't really have a desire for something else because they're so full of sin. And some of God's people are no longer a river of living water because they have become filled with the entertainments of this world or sometimes with the stagnant waters of carnality. And so Jesus asked, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Please note, He said, if any man is thirsty, he didn't say if any man is empty, 
My automobile has been empty many times, but it's never been thirsty. And I meet a lot of people who have empty lives, but they're not necessarily thirsty. And I've met some Christians who used to be filled with the Spirit of God, but they've lost their thirst. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I would ask you this morning, do you have a hunger? Do you have a thirst for righteous, holy living? That person shall be filled. But if you become self-satisfied with your sin, then you will not be a river of living water. Now, when you became a Christian, God forgave you on the basis of his son's death. All of your sin, past, present, and future, was forgiven because of Christ's sacrifice for you. At the moment you were saved, the Spirit of God came to live in you, and he was filling you. But while he may have been filling you then, it does not necessarily mean that he is filling you now. God longs to fill you. God wants to fill you. The only thing that will keep you from being filled is if you are already full. And if you're so full of self, so full of pride, so full of your own talents and skills that you don't need God, then you will not see his work in your life. Now, maybe you should pray this morning, God, I want to be thirsty to be thirsty. Or God, I am in need to be needy. Or God, I care that I don't care. If your heart is that distant, then pray that, God, I care that I don't care. If you've grown complacent and satisfied, God will never give you more. So here's an invitation. If, if any man is thirsty, so number one, if you want to be a river of living water, you must thirst. Number two, you must come. If any man is thirsty, let him come to me. First, you must thirst for Christ, then you must come to Christ. You see, in coming to the Lord Jesus Christ, you leave behind the thirst quenchers of this world. When you come to Jesus Christ, you turn away from your sin. You cannot turn to Christ without turning from your sin. On one occasion, Peter, right after Pentecost, when he preached, the people fell under deep, deep conviction. And they said, Lord, what must we do? Peter, what should we do? What would God want us to do? And in one word, he says, repent. Paul, on another occasion, the man comes under conviction. He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And in one word, he says, believe. Who's right? They're both right. Because you cannot truly believe in the Lord Jesus without repenting. You do not need a Savior unless you come to grips with your own sin. Unless you're willing to turn to Christ from your sin, you'll never be born again. You cannot hold on to the world with one hand and Jesus Christ with the other. You must be willing to change your mind. And I would say that that's true not just in justification, it's true in sanctification. Now understand there's a difference. When God saves you, He justifies you, the Bible says. You are declared righteous. It doesn't mean that you're made righteous. You will not literally be totally made perfectly righteous until you get a glorified body. But God declares you righteous. He gives you a new status. Not only does he wipe out all of your sin, but he credits to your account the very righteousness of Jesus Christ so that in him I have the righteousness of God. God looks at me today as holy, as forgiven. That's why the New Testament calls the believer a saint. But God wants to make in our practice... 
What is true in our position, that's called sanctification, that process by which the position you have in Jesus Christ is unfolded. So when you became a believer, the Spirit of God came to live in you and He was filling you. There was a time when God was opposed to you and you were opposed to God. You were enemies of God, the Bible said. But when God saved you, you came into a face-to-face -face relationship with the Lord. It's called reconciliation in the Bible. But when you sin or I sin, what are we doing? We're turning our back on God. God's not turning his back on us, not as a child, but we turn our back on God. We say, God, I'm going to do my own thing. And so God asks the believer to confess his sin. Every born-again, blood-bought child of God ought to memorize 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we end up bringing our will in line with God's will. And the Spirit who lives in us is once again free to fill us. Now understand, 1 John 1, 9 has absolutely nothing to do with salvation. I hear this verse used all the time as an appeal to lost people to get saved. It is not written to them, it is written to us who believe. If all you had to do was confess your sin to become a Christian, Jesus never would have had to have died. He could have just said, oh, God's a forgiving God. And if you confess, he'll forgive and you'll go to heaven. No, God has to have a basis by which he can forgive. And the basis is the blood of Jesus Christ. So God says, if we confess the word you know, homo legeo, homo the same, legeo to say, the word confess means to agree with, to say the same thing. And so when you confess your sin, there are at least three considerations that the New Testament outlines for us. First, you acknowledge your sin. You name them to God. You know, it's well been said that we confess that we sin retail, but we confess wholesale. You know, this kind of general confession, oh, God, forgive me of my many sins. Well, that's not the way you did them, and so that's not the way you're to confess them. See, you don't really have to come to grips with your sin when you say, oh, God, forgive me for my many sins. But when I say, oh, God, forgive me for my lust, or God, forgive me for my lying, or God, forgive me for whatever it may be, then you're dealing with your sin honestly before God. So number one, you acknowledge your sin. And secondly, you acknowledge that the basis of that forgiveness is Christ's blood. Not only was it the cross that gave you new life, it is the cross that allows you to walk in fellowship with the Lord. Paul, uh, John will say in this context, it is the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all of our sin. It is not your tears. I've seen a lot of Christians with crocodile tears without repentance. It is not your tears. It is not the money you give or the things you start doing that ever becomes a basis for the things you've done wrong as a Christian. It is still the blood of Jesus Christ. And so you come by faith in the Lord Jesus. You trust his death, burial, and resurrection to save you. It's the cross that saves you, not the faith. Faith is just the channel that accepts what Jesus did. Even so, it's not your confession. It's Christ's blood. But the channel to receive it is confession. So first, you acknowledge your sin. Secondly, you acknowledge that God has already paid for it through the death of his son. And third, you repent. You change your attitude toward that sin. Now take that back here to John chapter 7 and verse uh, 37. If you've been saved, you're secure. 
But understand, if you've been saved and you're living in sin, you are out of fellowship with God. Some of you here this morning, you need to come to Jesus Christ for salvation. You need to come to Him for the first time. You need to trust Him as your personal Savior. Others of us, we need to come back to the Lord Jesus Christ to restore the fellowship that was lost. So first you thirst. Secondly, you come and repent. Third, you must drink. Look at the, the promise. If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Now, if you're an unbeliever, you have to appropriate the Lord Jesus into your life. We all know what it means to thirst. We all know what it means to come to a person, and we all know what it means to drink. We know what it means to imbibe fluid into our body. Well, Jesus uses this as an illustration of God the Holy Spirit. You say, well, how do I drink? Well, remember we saw in John 6, he used a similar expression, whoever drinks my blood, which he equated with believing in him. And of course, in the immediate context, he reveals that very thing. You drink by faith when you trust Jesus to save you. And so he says in verse 38, He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. And so I would ask you today, if you're here and you've never been saved, are you thirsty? Are you tired of running your own life? And are you willing to come to Jesus Christ? You say, but I'm so sinful, then come to Christ. But I'm so weak, then come to him. Or I don't understand. You'll never understand until you're born again because a natural man doesn't understand the things of the Spirit of God. Only Christ can give you that understanding and only he can give you that satisfaction in life. Believe on him and you'll be saved. You must be willing to believe. You must be willing to forsake your own plan of salvation and trust in his. You must renounce your own good works as any basis for saving you and trust his finished work on the cross. You must be willing to turn from your sin to Jesus Christ. And the same applies for those of us who have been saved. Are you thirsty? Or have you filled your life with the sin of this world? I meet some Christians who are not necessarily doing bad things, but they're not doing the best things. And they have so filled their life with the entertainments of this world that they've lost their thirst for Jesus Christ. Now, God commands the Christian in Ephesians 5 to be a river of living water. So then Paul writes, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. That's not an option for you. I want to say to you this morning, if you cannot say, I am filled with God the Holy Spirit, then you can't say I'm living in disobedience. Because if you are not filled with the Spirit of God this moment, I'm not talking about what happened to you a year ago or 10 years ago, but if you are not filled with the Spirit of God as you sit there in that seat this morning, then you're out of the will of God. This is God's will for the Christian. Don't be foolish. Understand His will. Be filled with the Spirit. Now, Paul writes in the same epistle that the moment God saves you, He gives you the Spirit. He said in Ephesians 1.13, In Him, in Christ, you also... After listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you are sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. The moment you hear the message of salvation, because you can't believe until you hear, when you hear the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection, and you believe it, God gives you the Spirit of God. Don't ever listen to these Christians who tell you you get saved and then you get the Spirit. That is just bad theology. 
If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program John 023. Maybe you have a question that you would like to ask Dr. Brogy personally. Don't forget that you can do that tomorrow between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. You can also listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.